Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Aaron Von Rock of Lincoln Ristorante in Lincoln Center stops by today to talk about a long career based in the New York market and the trends he's seen leading up to his work now with Italian wines. Aaron Von Rock of Lincoln Restaurant is here today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Good to see you. Likewise. So you're the old uh, wine director at the Lincoln Restaurant in Lincoln Center area in New York. But uh, before you got there, you used to live in the Maryland area back when you were growing up? That's right. I grew up in Maryland in, uh, in Owings Mills, home of the Ravens training camp. So. Oh, oh, okay. Were the Ravens around at that time? Aren't they fairly new? Like, they were. Well, the Colts were there when I was growing up. Oh, okay, okay. So, so uh, how did you get involved in the wine side? Well, you know, it starts in Maryland, actually. Uh, my mother and her cousin decided to harvest her father's old Concord grapes that were up the hill from the house. And uh, they made some horrible brown wine. Yeah. We were, were you involved in that? We're the free child labor. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, stomping grapes as a kid is fun for a few minutes, and then you get really giddy from the CO2, and then after that, it's a chore. But uh, it's a good way to have a basement odor of wine as opposed to the other choices for basement scents. Right, right. Because there, there is a real odor that gives off, like when you go to a winery, you run crush. Just so, know? yeah. Yeah. Love so, the esters in the air. So when you go back, do you have you like to a winery? Do you feel like hey, I am five years old right you know, like that kind of stuff? <laughs> well, I feel like uh, you know, I've been running from bad wine ever since that experience. Yeah, you're like, oh, let's let's try Venus vinifera, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Conquer grape, uh, they oxidize so fast. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, they do. It's a uh, typically makes brown wine. You have to make them age them in demijohn to try to protect the color as much as possible. But so the you didn't have a home rotor fermenter. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Because I imagine that, you know, no one does, but it'd be fun if someone could try, you know what I mean? That's like, right. The Concord the cutting edge. Roto fermenter. Yes, we had blackberry wine, Concord grape wine, and dandelion wine when we were growing up. Dandelion wine. Yeah. Wow, very Ray Bradbury. So every year, you were rocking that out? Uh, for a few years. Yeah. Maybe just about three through seven for me. But there, my... there was wine at the table then that you guys made? Not like, really. Oh, okay. No, it was still... Uh, still America drinking brown liquors and uh, and jug wine. So that was for the relatives when they come by, or what was that for? It was a fun experiment. You know, her, but the vines were right up the hill from where I grew up. Okay, and it was a steep hillside. The old European idea: what do you do with a steep hillside? You plant grapes. So it, that had, there was some forethought there, except it was Concord grape vines, and they were probably sixty years old when uh, when they were making wine from it when I was growing up. Low yields, uh, very interesting, non trellis. You know. Wild, just wild, but they uh, concrete create a tunnel like shape. Is that true? If, if allowed to go naturally, so we would climb inside this interesting tunnel where the uh, where the grapes would hang, no sunlight on them at all. That sounds great. Yeah, except when the spiders would close off the oh, exits. Okay. You know, after you went in, that sounds like a cold play video. Yeah, <laughs> just so <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> so at some point, you decided to get into the world of bottled wine that you I didn't make yourself. Well, you know, I think you have an edge on your colleagues when uh, when you grew up with a a little bit of a wine background. Yeah, you can pull that card out. That's right. Be like, I've done crush. Yeah. So when I came to New York City, I met some. I started meeting some winemakers. You know, this is a real mecca. 
great wines come here, winemakers visit. You know, I think this week there are probably 300 to 400 winemakers in the city just for the Italian events coming up. Mm -hmm. And that makes a different experience when you're actually involved with the people. And uh, that really enchanted me to the industry too. So you felt a natural bond with some of the people that you were meeting in the wine business right away. kind of people I wanted to be around, you know. They have a sense of history, sense of community, and uh, and they want to make people happy they may never meet. So intrinsically, that was the kind of characters I wanted to associate with. And when did you end up moving to New York? It's 1994. Okay. So you've probably seen a lot of changes in that time, uh, just based on, you know, rising rent, but, you know, lessening crime and different economies. And I mean, what's it been like following the New York wine market? Well, when I arrived here, we're in the middle of a boom that lasts till 2001. It's interesting to see prices increasing, the demand for some wines pushing them into the stratosphere. And I remember buying back then when you had to pre-order wines you'd never tasted just in order to get a shot to get them. I think with... uh, Like allocated cult wines. Just so. And, uh, And that still occurs with some of the highest end, but now you see a little more accessibility after the troubles in 2001 with the economy there and then a recovery and then once again in 2008 like when, kind of the same thing yes. in a way i mean it just suddenly the bottom dropped out right? quite a bit if you remember that's when uh, 2005 bordeaux gets released a lot of people reneged on those oh okay orders yeah, it was really changing the scene i never bit. sent you that email that kind of thing <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah it was an, it was a phone conversation you don't have tapes you know like it's like nixon or something yeah. that's right but i mean 94 so you kind of saw the rise of cold cab that's true and uh, probably even what was new york like i mean was it the dominant uh chardonnay merlot cabernet access that we saw outside of new york uh, merlot- happening in new york you remember Merlot, remember? Yeah, right, right. Oh, wow. It was, uh, you had to have a whole page of Merlot. You did, then. yeah. And uh, every price point attacked, you know, every opportunity, every style. You really wanted to have a big Merlot page. It's kind of sad that it's on such a lurch because it came such a great wine. You know, I still have people say, I hate uh, I hate Merlot. At this Macetto's delicious. Did people, you know? people rock that out, that, that, do, yeah. that little that tw- tongue twister, as it were? That's right. But I mean, it must be nice to have uh, distributors, more of them, more options, and they flex on you less with the allocations probably than well, it was Well, there's so the many distributors with minimum orders. So I'm sure you've encountered the conversation with uh, with New York City restaurants, no, no space. Minimum orders are a little bit higher than they used to be, and uh, you deal with more distributors than ever. Because so. delivery costs are higher, so they want to recoup it on volume. And, uh, and warehouse costs too, I suppose. Sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So what do you think the other big changes are since since 94? Well, we see a, a great affection for more real wines. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun to watch the uh, the, the unprocessed wines become a little more dominant. And uh, people are able to turn a wine bottle over and look at an importer and know that the, they can rely on that kind of, uh, that production to be something a little more true to the terroir. Was that a little bit more of a challenge before when, uh, you know, some of the more artisanal importers were either less well-known or hadn't started yet? Well, you still had uh, reactions to unfiltered wines. A lot of uh, dismay at the color of a wine not being a, a you know pure ruby color in some cases. Sure. I remember that. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, you always had the uh, the stigma dichotomies, I call them. The, uh, like the, uh, the stigma against Blue Nun ruining Riesling for 40 years. Sure. You know, the Leap from Milch problems. You know, Lambrusco. This yeah. Pinot Grigio is too sweet. I'll take a Diet Coke instead, please. You know, those issues uh, were resonant then and still continue today. Was that White Zinfandel still a thing in '94? A little bit. You yeah, know, you had to have one. Yeah, or two. And Pinot Grigio, same thing, right? You Quite a bit. Had to have one, right? Yeah, yep. It's amazing to think that now. You know what I mean? But so you you worked at a range of places and you worked with uh, with David Gordon over. He was the uh, the consulting uh, wine character at my first oh, restaurant. That's probably the best we never for it. <laughs> exactly. Because uh, he, he's such a big character. He's so funny. Right. He's almost as funny as you, Levy. No, he's much funnier. I've seen him crack up a room with no new stimulus and the whole room full of sommeliers almost under the table when he's on a roll. But uh, the best thing he taught was uh, humility and really getting to know the wine and the wineries as well. And uh, he would stop into Verbena restaurant, my first restaurant stop. I was there for a decade because it was so such a nurturing atmosphere, great uh, chef ownership, 
Who's the chef and where was that restaurant? It was, uh, her name was Diane Forley. Okay. She, we were on Irving Place, so a little charming area. Sure. Walking distance from my home. It was a garden restaurant and old, two old brownstones. They're built in 1847. Next to the tea place. That's right. Yeah. I like that place. Yeah. Pretty good place. Uh, that's the, uh, the interesting owner of the, many of the buildings on the block on Irving Place. Oh. She, she owns that. Uh, that person that's from the right. tea place? That makes a lot of sense because they don't, they're not so accommodating. Like it, it makes sense that they own the place. You know yeah. what I mean? And many of the buildings on that, historic buildings on that block. Got it. Including some of the larger, you know, Tudor style. What was that neighborhood like now? Because now I associate it as being uh, very expensive to live and pretty white bread. I mean, it, I had opportunities to move into a couple of places there that were under a thousand dollars with a key to the park. Unbelievable. But you know, key to the park. Exactly. Dude. That's the dream. Right. And uh, obviously, I regret not choosing to take one of those places at the time, but I was already within walking distance of work. So. Sure. But very charming neighborhood. Uh, you know, there was uh, some novelist who would write historical novels and use Gramercy as an area because you could go walk in that and it would look like it was in 1890. Yeah, you feel like you're with Henry James when you walk through that neighborhood. Just so, yeah. Yeah, the Artist Club and stuff like that. And it's in that exactly. Woody Allen movie, which was probably right around that time. Manhattan Murder Mystery. That's like true. Like it's in that, that neighborhood. So... Uh, you're there, and what was the, the list focused on at that time? What was the move? It was French and American, actually. And did did you kind of witness also along since '94 the rise of the kind of all Italian or mostly focused on Italian list in New York? Quite a bit. You know, that was a it's a kind of a challenging thing to do we, at Lincoln, which is all Italian except for Champagne. Where you work now? Exactly. You still get some kickback. Like I can't believe you don't have a Malbec, right? Or you don't have a or California wine, are you snobs or are you trying to uh, trying to say they're not worthy? Right, but, right, right. There's yeah. a lot of nationalism amongst the South Americans, I think. Quite you know, a bit, yeah. Like, where is my local wine? And know? they're and they're great wine consumers, so it's nice to assure them that maybe we can find something that, uh, that they'll enjoy that could resonate like a Malbec might. Sure. But because uh, I feel like even in the 90s, you could be a French restaurant, but often you still had a lot of American wine. Whereas now I feel like you could be a French restaurant and basically have French wine, or you could be an Italian restaurant and have Italian wine, or you could be an American restaurant and have American wine. But like that sense of the 90% regional list as opposed to the 50% regional list seems to have gone more in that direction over that, that time period, I think. Well, yeah. consumer knowledge certainly has improved greatly. You know, we, a lot of people know a lot more about wine. The uh, There's that treachery in the middle ground where someone knows a lot about wine but that can be make it more challenging sure. to help them find a, find something for that evening but because uh, they have certain prejudices that they're bringing with them in that knowledge sometimes true enough yeah yeah but i mean the whole buying side must be easier too like uh because uh things are online now and you can search and you can you know like email people as opposed to try to call them on their beeper <laughs> you know what i mean like, right emailing makes a difference yeah because you can make sure your all the information is verified because it's in writing. Yeah, because that's you know people are like oh, I didn't get the order and you're like come on dude I sent it to you like, exactly and yep. like it says three cases why did you send me five and right do you find also that uh, like people are treating it more like wine rather than booze like on the distributor side like, yes I mean you know with the the rising sommeliers across the city some of them go over to the dark side and they start to sell wine and you can count on someone who's a who's been buying wine to be selling the wine to you too, much more knowledgeable. I remember back in 1994, meeting someone from a liquor distributor whose claim to fame was he had built the tallest champagne fountain, you know, where you step, build the, yeah. build the glasses up and do it. That's a actually pretty baller. I wish I could do that. I tried to do it one time and I broke like 10 glasses at a restaurant and they were so happy with me. <laughs> the guy didn't know anything about wine though. Right, right, right. And every saying. time he was introduced, we heard the same story. I probably got introduced to him 20 times with, hey, this is the guy that built <laughs> This is the guy. He's that got the me. world record. And then he wouldn't know anything about wine. But uh, right. that, was the, that was the top salesman back in the day. And then now it's people who are much more passionate about the wine and not necessarily the wine they're selling, but just passionate about wine in general. Just in general. Because it used to be like dudes would only drink their own book a lot. That's right. Like a lot. You know, he'd be like, oh, I don't, I don't do that brand of Merlot. I only do this brand of Merlot and that kind of stuff. Well, one of the people you've interviewed recently actually is, comes into my restaurant, always 86 is his wines, but he's a lovable character. Mm -hmm. I oh. think I can guess who you mean. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and it's not Aldo Slum. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so you, uh, so you're working with uh, with David, and you're doing the Verbena thing, and that's that's ten years. And what else did you pick up there at that time? I and mean, what kind of what kind of experiences were you having? Who was coming in the restaurant? We did a lot of tasting menu wine pairing, so that was really uh, getting immediate reactions to to showcasing a lot of different wine, and uh, getting a lot of feedback from the guest. And I remember doing a tasting menu wine pairing for a table. And it, it served them their wine. It happened to be a winery from California. Did you know that in advance? I didn't. It was kind of fun. That that worked out pretty well for you. Yeah. Because I've had the opposite experience where they're like, I guess this guy doesn't like Napa. <laughs> like that kind, of, <laughs> that kind of experience. You're like, oh, I didn't realize you were involved in the trade. Sorry. <laughs> well, I, got, I got really lucky with that. The, uh, the dish was something that really, it was one of those very few dishes that screams for modern Chardonnay. And uh, they were sitting there and they said, well, we're, we're at the tallies. And uh, I was like, he's oh. so nice, though, Brian. So nice guy. This was his parents. At the oh, time. okay, okay. He had sent them in, and they didn't know that we were pouring the wine by the glass, or that was something that would come as a highlight for the pairing. But very funny. It must be a nice triumph for them. I don't even think they started out in the wine business. They were more like uh, uh, just uh, bulk crop, like they did asparagus and stuff. I think like vegetables. They're apparently very important farm to table uh, artisan. Politics oh, is that true? Too, right, from the grapevines. And that was the old idea, too. Plant the grapevines where they couldn't do their regular agriculture, which was their business. But uh, then they started to get involved with more heritage varieties of different produce. We did a dinner with them years later. So it must have been maybe 14 years after first encountering them for a wine pairing that they came in and brought some of their vegetables for the chef to work with. And we did a wine pairing. Well, that's really cool. Dinner. Yeah. One of the things I always liked about them is the, the wines always pretty much stayed well priced, at least at the the basic level of the you know the yep. non rosemaries, like just the straight Chardonnay, straight exactly. you know, like it was affordable and you could. They really towed the line on the, on maintaining a quality price ratio that was enjoyable. Because a lot of other people were like, "Hey, stratosphere, here I come," you know exactly. what I mean? And you're like, "Well, people want a California Chardonnay for a decent price, and you actually are selling one." that's good and not overplayed i thought like stylistically they never went for the stratosphere either you right. know they kind of kept it middle ground you know well that refers back to that boom too the restaurant boom i was referring to i remember the pricing for one particular cabernet that i mean it's almost pre-cult cabernet but you know helen turley had her hand in it in the early beginnings but it went from twenty dollars twenty six sixty seven the next year it was 40 then it was 45 and now it's 75 dollars a bottle but you could basically mark up an old vintage according to the new vintage and still be very fairly priced. And that boom continued and created a you know a real strategy for people to move their wine prices up. I think that was the real hand in glove that built sommelier programs in the country, like yeah. Colt Cab. Exactly. Because the profit easy. margins and people came to give you the money because they couldn't get it at retail. Exactly. Which is not true of Burgundy now or, you know, Italian Barolo now or you know they had to come to you to try it and everybody wanted to try it because they'd been reading about it and th that's what funded the big wine programs of the 90s i think you know yeah. well maybe there's a different drive now like barolo is so accessibly priced they're really cooperating with importers to make the entry-level normale barolo available yeah i mean between nebula d'alba and barolo i mean there's barolos on the market that wholesale for 20 dollars exactly. a bottle that's they're true. perfectly drinkable you know what i mean you're like wow that's cheap you, yeah. know, you, you can pour them by the glass you know? crave worthy stuff that you are then you're shocked to see the price and you know obviously there's the other side too where there's expensive barolo but uh, you know there's a lot of wine in piemonte and some of it's quite excessively priced and i think you know it's a nice alternative for my own drinking you know to some of the more expensive stuff agreed so, so at some point you left the old verbena and what did you do after that well a couple of projects i uh, Went down and did my first all-Italian wine list down in Tribeca. It's a short-lived restaurant, but a great immersion into Italian wine for me. What was that place called? It's called Della Rovere. I think I remember walking by there. <laughs> it's funny. It's a, it's on the way to Tribeca Grill, which has so many tastings. So Sure. That's exactly probably how, because there's been so many tastings at Tribeca Grill. That's I think one time I walked by and I was walking by the old space where Della Rovere was, and I saw my desk chair in the street. Kind of oh fun. god that's got to be a little bit of a kick in the well unless it was a comfortable chair it was i'm sitting in something very much like it right now did you take it with you at the time Were no, you like, no no taxi let's put this in the back we had a good laugh i think we took a photo and then uh, then we went to a big tasting 
And uh, so you, that was kind of your first experience doing all Italian, or was that? It is. Or focused Italian wine list, yes. And was there a lot, uh, wasn't that like a lot by the glass there? There was a hundred by the glass in Cortina. That's a lot. It's a healthy quantity and uh, we used a nitrogen system to preserve it. But uh, Sure, like the PJ Fleming's kind of model. Just so. Yeah. And uh, it, was, it gave us a chance for a lot of adventure. But uh, that's where I also met some of the characters I would get involved with to start a Telepan restaurant. Oh, you met them there. I did. Like Bill and... Well, Bill came down for dinner, but uh, Bill's primary uh, business partner, Jimmy Nicholas, is a longtime wine collector, goes to a lot of auctions to support charities on the food wine side, had built up a big cellar of his own and figured out, like many collectors do, that he had more wine than he could possibly drink or share. Sure. And with a generous personality, he was ready to open a restaurant and support it with his wine cellar. So we opened Telepan in 2005. It was a all world wine list, but the real focus was the powerful pillars of the list were French, American, and Italian. And I remember you had some vintages that were esteemed with age on the list in depth that had to come from private collection because you can just get those wholesale anymore. And Jimmy had happened into buying a lot of 97 California and a lot of 97 Italian, made it really easy. Yeah, I remember that, the 97, there was like multiple pages, I think, uh, the 97 pages. In the beginning, it really got, it got hit hard in the beginning, but uh, there's still plenty to to have whole pages in that restaurant supporting those vintages still. I I like that list because it was like, it fit the place, which was, it was open, it was accessible. You you could go at it a lot of different ways. You know, you could have a burger, which was good, or you could go like more uh, refined and you could do the same with the list. And it was, it was open knit and you could kind of approach it at whatever level you needed to do that. We're a fun team to work with as well. You know, if people find themselves on the Upper West Side and going to Telepan, it's a, it's a great, you know, lively feel. Bill Telepan has a huge laugh and you can hear him in the dining room anywhere you are. Always kind of fun. What was he like to work with? Oh, he's a, a he's a brilliant mind. Uh, he's get, gets on the phone with the farmers, comical conversations accuse them of having a cell phone while they're driving a tractor, you know, something going in the back of a wine label where you're not supposed to be doing that. But, but uh, really funny. And uh, working with it closely with the farmers or, or, or livestock purveyors as well. But a great sense of humor. Could always laugh his way out of a tough spot too. And you were there for a few years? Uh, there for five years. Wow. Yeah. And was that nice to kind of watch the sellers? Because you had some long-term restaurant experiences. Was it nice to see the sellers that you built mature? Because that's something that not everyone gets to do. It's but. magical. I remember when uh, Verbena closed, they sold their seller. They paid off all the orig- original investment. They made a profit at the end of it. and uh, Just from selling the escalated the price of the seller. Right. And it was a reasonable value you know, over the period of the 10 years. But uh, it really had made a difference to build a cellar and watch it, you know, bear fruit at the end. Do you think that if someone could do the same thing today or would that be more difficult? I think you always have to buy with that in mind that uh, that you're buying for the future. Even if you don't anticipate being in the restaurant for some time, you have a, you have a dedicated purpose to build the cellar, not only for drinking that day, but for drinking in the future. And maybe the end result where the restaurant closes the the chefs move on and what what's the end result i see like so unlocking that value at the end of the day that you know if you were to sell it or that kind of thing keeping an eye to it not just being ephemeral always trying to taste to find the next new big wine new york's kind of ideal i had mentioned earlier it's a mecca but i taste about thirteen thousand wines a year is that true it is getting out to the big tastings forcing yourself to keep tasting more and more I think it makes a big difference. How do you think your own palate's changed over that long period of time drinking that much wine? It's more dialed into tasting, if you're tasting 17 Riesling right in a row, what, where's the real quality star? What's the, what are the triggers that say it's a, it's a higher quality than the previous 16 or the other 16 in the group? What would some of those be? I mean, if I were to go in and evaluate wines and really look for it within a category, what appeals to what I'm looking for, what should I be thinking about? I think uh, whenever you get a resonating minerality, it's a sign that the grapes were of usable intensity in the origin. They weren't over manipulated and that the terroir is shining through. So in any combination or challenge between one wine and another, minerality is a, it can be a winner. It's a sign that we're dealing with quality that 
can uh, give you quality now and into the future. Do you find that also helps uh, pairing with food? Like that kind of minerality can help with maybe the clean flavors of a of, of chef like Bill Telepan or uh, Mr. Benno? Well, I think the uh, the first duty of a wine in a wine pairing is that it be of high quality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That often gives it a chance to show off dimensions that can be a surprise or revelation with the dish. And then beyond that, matching the body. But yes, the quality, if it starts there, usually can have the wine either survive a bad pairing because it maintains its personality, or you can have it show off something brand new and really elevate the experience. The idea of wine pairing isn't just bringing food and wine together. It's having them both improve from the experience. That's interesting because that almost sounds like a prism, like where you put the food through a prism and it bounces off a different way depending on how it's shining that day. You know what I mean? I have a lot of visual impressions of... You know, it, oh, you do? I do. Yeah, of bringing food and wine together. I think about colors a lot in I my too, mind. Yeah. Like I, a certain wine will represent a certain kind of color, and a dish will too. I'm not sure why I think about it that way, but I often. It's often a great do. insight, though. It's a, it's part of the poetry what brings it brings it together. I think about shapes. You, you do know, edges. Uh, you know how a sauce covers the rough edges, or the texture of a lamb chop the way it striates like the texture of tannins on the back of a bigger wine and why they resonate so well together. They have a similar rhythm. That, that's a really insightful comment because that's really true. It kind of forces that rhythm on the palate. And then when the sauce moves through the striations of the lamb chop, that's what the fruit does in a wine that has a structure and backbone. So how is it that you don't have a liberal arts background? Because every time I talk to you, I feel like... You know, here's the guy who read Dante, and then you no, know, you were in finance. So I mean, what, you know, what, where what were you just trying to uh, make sure you had a, a viable career, or or what? Like you know, yeah, it was a it was a part of the thing that I enjoyed when I was younger. It was a sure uh, liberal arts reading, poetry, but also uh, I was compelled by finance as well. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of fun with that up in, up in school. It must make uh, sense in terms of. Uh, maintaining costs and overseeing a program that you have that background in, in, in finance and accounting. It does. You know, I love to go to auction because, uh, I think we have a good financial strategy for getting great wines when we go to auction. What would that be? I mean, just some broad strokes. I love the, uh, the strategy of putting in absentee bids so that you're with the hammer at the auction. Because the good auctioneer will striate his, his, uh, bids to the highest absentee bid to end there so that the bidding goes into the room with advantage. If you have the high absentee bid, you're with the hammer. And I think that's a great spot to be when you're trying to, you know, you're bottom feeding when you're a restaurant wine buyer at auction. Because you need to add markup. And that needs to be a viable price at the end of the day when you've added that markup. Just so. It's got to be something that still resonates value once it's in the restaurant. So being with the hammer is a good idea. Then you have to be in the room and watch for other great values that uh, that drop into your lap. So it's a combination of, right. of putting in the absentee bid. So in a way, you don't get carried away with the excitement of the bidding, That's but right. at the same time, watching just to see if something flops and you can grab it before it, it disappears. That's right. Do you find that certain categories have tended to flop more often in auction than others? Yeah, there's some surprises too. Sometimes the cult Cabernets that are not in the top tier, they flop quite a bit. We see that a lot. I'm often sorry to see some of the uh, some of the burgundies that uh, people don't know. But if you're in an auction room with someone like Daniel Jonas, you watch him snap up a lot of great little lots that go for bargains. He's introduced me to some cool old burgundies that, you know, like old uh, Favorly. He was like all about it. And I was like, oh, really? Huh, I didn't know. And, you know, delicious. You exactly. Know. I remember his. He would know what uh, what crews are actually domain bottlings from them that are that are worthwhile. That's true. Old uh, old Latour too, like Corton Grancy and stuff. Stuff you just wouldn't think. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Stuff you could brace yourself to ignore or, or leave the room, and then you'd see his paddle go up a few times, and and you'd know there was something interesting afoot. Well, so is that important too to read the room and see like who's bidding on it? Like, oh, that's a Burgundy, and the Burgundy guy's bidding on it. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I advise you to leave if Daniel Jonas is in the room. Oh yeah, you will not beat him to a bargain. <laughs> well, there's some there's some old timers who are just 
like uh, great bargain hunters. I think that almost defines the old time buyer. Like less concerned with fashion, more concerned with getting a great deal. Like, right. When you think about guys in their fifties now, you know, I, I there's so many dudes like that. You know what I mean? Who are just that was the the move. They were so great at that and uh, looking for the the underprice. And uh, whereas I find like a lot of young sommeliers are like, hey, what's fashionable? I need to move in that direction. Sure. You know? Like, you know, what's going to sell? Like, what's what's hip, you know? And uh, so it's it's almost like uh, sometimes I find the old buyers are a little bit more um, willing to be stylistically diverse because they just want a good deal on it. You know what I mean? True. Uh, what do you think about the the rise of different styles? I mean, you know, thinking back since 94, uh, what wouldn't you have anticipated actually be viable that maybe has been? I think, well, how about the orange wine movement? Is that a thing? I think it's it may be ending. Yeah, maybe. Now that there are more in the market, and actually more that are actually uh, easily accessible and communicable to tables quickly. Mm-hmm. Some of them that are, you know, the slightly orange or, you know, they use only one of the three different methods for oranging. But uh, we certainly see that uh, the rise and the, the, I think the pinnacle is hit, but uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of fun to watch that activity through the whole arc. What's hard to know is like what actually is orange. Cause like, I, I feel like almost it, everything's orange now. It's like, because everyone's uh, outside of Burgundy and some other classic regions, everyone macerates for a few hours to a day, you know, right. like, you Adding know, in the skin contact and the, Sauvignon Blanc producers in California do. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's not outside of like Austria, you know, like we're super reductive winemaking. Like everyone's doing it a little bit and it's hard to know what's actually orange and what's like just more macerated than it would have been 10 years ago. You know? Have you watched uh, Blanc de Noir Champagne? Many of them have color now. and uh, Absolutely. Not something I really anticipated in the past. And of course there are more in the market with more of the growers. Yeah, like uh, Barash or something or even Paul Barra. You know, the there's Egli a lot Aurier, of Egli Blanc Aurier. de Noir is, uh, is with color now. Nice little copper color to it. It's kind of like oil de Paradis style. Like people are more Just used so. to not having it be perfectly. It's kind of like the unfiltered thing. Like the people are used to having it not be perfectly uh, see-throughable. You exactly, know what I mean? Exactly, yeah. It makes a difference for them to be accepting of the unfined, unfiltered and a little bit of color. A lot of uh, Pinot Grigio called Ramato. Sure, doing a Ramato thing, which yeah. I think would have been... Uh, a big problem a few years ago during the height of popularity for Pinot Grigio to actually get someone to understand that. I think it's real chance was probably back. in 94 when they could have, uh, they could have not that they weren't enjoying their own cresting wave, but they could have, uh, they could have been the double barrel, the white Sinfandel slash Pinot Grigio. Oh, major. sure. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. That's that could true. have been a good chance, but, uh, they I went the other way. had a producer, uh, Jean-Paulo Vanica show me uh-huh. what happens to, a short maceration of Pinot Grigio, when many of the grapes are pink or quite black, in fact. And as you add sulfur, the color disappears. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sulfur strips color. So over-sulfuring has been the reason for many, why many Pinot Grigios aren't showing color. That so makes sense. I didn't even think about that. It's really dramatic imagery. And I think he's got that uh, handy on his, all of his website activity where you can see the, the color just eliminated. Well, you can see the relationship between low sulfur natural wine and orange wine being often you know there there's a few in the room of that are both you know what i mean it's right. like oh it's a natural wine thing and look there's some that are orange you know so you can see why a guy using less sulfur would that's a really you know good point so uh after telepan you decided to make the move for lincoln which was opening up and you you opened that up as the wine director what was that experience like it seemed like a it was kind of under our microscope there was a lot of attention being paid to it because uh, quite a bit of attention i think uh if you recall it didn't have a name until yeah that's right that's right the last moment and that's dealing with a lot of forces you know you've got lincoln center committed to this uh to this renaissance in the area 1.2 billion dollar project to transform the, that area. The building is amazing I mean, it's an amazing building. The whole plaza building. is fantastic. You know, we're having some tough weather right now. No place looks better in tough weather than sitting inside of Lincoln, watching the mist on the infinity pool around the, the Henry Moore statue. It looks like the dawn of time. Just beautiful in the rainstorms as well. And you feel like you're outdoors all the time. Because you have the big picture windows. All around. All the way around, except for one corner where you can walk up on top of the roof. Which is really cool. I sat up there before. It's neat. No. It's, uh, do you ever go up there on your break and read a book or have lunch? No, I haven't been up there. 
it's one of these things like I live next to the uh, Empire State Building. I've never been in there either. But uh, so the grass roof above me is. Uh, I, I went to the Empire State Building. It's not all it's cracked <laughs> up to be, but the grass roof <laughs> thing <you>. I dig. <laughs> it's nice. We're going to plant some vines up there, I think. Is that true? That'd be awesome, dude. Come on, Concord Grape, man. Bring it back. <laughs> Full circle. Because brown wine is... <laughs> yeah, it's going <laughs> to take over. But it reminds me, uh, that building reminds me of like uh, influenced by like the TWA, Euro-Serranian kind of model of the soaring windows. That's and, funny. It reminds you know. me of the you know, great age old, uh, you know, going to the wonderful airport lounges. You know. mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, from the outside, especially, it really reminds me of that. You know what I mean? And, well, the swivel chairs inside don't hurt either. Right, 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 right. Those kind of, yeah, Voce kind of made those popular, I think. The swivel, the, That's you know, true. the business manager. So you get in there, and uh, what was that opening like, I mean, to work it? We were in the building 27 hours before our first event. No way, dude. Fashion week started. and Oh, uh, and it was like go time. It was, but September allowed us to use the outdoor area, so we didn't have to have uh, everyone wearing hard hats to come inside. But uh, we used the outside. So you were serving outside because the inside wasn't done yet. That's right. What was it like like working with that kind of cellar condition? Like, could you get in there or were you like hopping over cords and stuff? Oh, that was uh, that was back in the age of uh, just, it was probably only three or four wines available at the time. Sure. It was a temporary liquor license as well. We still have. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it was a. <laughs> it's a fully stacked deck of It was uh, a concerns. mad sprint to the finish yeah. line. We had a couple good ideas in place though to get it going. A couple good cocktail uh, concepts we opened up with the negroni bar which we call ora felice and yeah you guys had a negroni uh class and stuff too i remember people a couple of classes as well yeah. but uh, i remember going out to these big wine tastings that that we attend and wanting a beer or a negroni afterwards you'd walk into a bar and uh, they wouldn't have the exact ingredients you'd require and you'd have to cobble it together and you notice that there are different different perspectives to the drink so we structure that in the in the wine list so that people could play with their own negronis it's and, almost like a really high class build your own bloody mary bar that's right you know what i mean yeah and it's, it's been a lot of fun because we've discovered more aperitivo bitters like campari an organic version called virgiano uh canato americano yeah really good yeah exceptional just put a bottle in your refrigerator you could uh you could drink right from the bottle it's a cocktail ready to go but it also makes a great uh you know ingredient in the negroni bar too and then more uh, more great vermouths becoming available as well. Has that really been the difference that things are actually more available too, like in that style, like more oh, vermouth? And definitely. More like there's an old uh, aperitivo bitter, it's called Cardamaro, that mm -hmm. makes a great showing in that bar as well. It's ancient and uh, more bent on its thistle and gentian ingredients, but and a little more whiny in texture. But that's a nice for a nice ruddy colored version too. So getting into more... Italian wine uh, on the list of Lincoln and really focusing in on that because uh, as you said, it's it's Italian wine plus champagne and that's the list, but also Italian spirits. Yes, finding and, more and more of those. And and it seems to be a, a kind of a growing artisanal category where more are being brought in. That's true. And uh, little importers that are more passionate. How do you find uh, like the best way to serve them? Is it by themselves? Is it in mixed drinks? Is it chilled? Is it not chilled? Does it depend on what it is? Our cocktail is we try to skew Italian because uh, telling someone that Lincoln is an Italian restaurante can be a challenge. It's part of the reason why the list is all Italian. Because people are thinking like Abraham. Exactly. And you're trying to reassert at every angle that it's the spirit is Italian. So putting them into the cocktails too, we make maybe an old fashioned with some, uh, with some Italian ingredients. Uh, we also use Italian ingredients in, uh, in a version of our, of the aviation cocktail too. Oh, okay. So, so that puts a spin them, on it. Exactly. So all of them skew Italian when we can, and then it introduces the names and the references to a lot of the guests who are curious to go beyond. Have you ever thought about calling it like Lincoln, like that kind of thing? <laughs> I do in my email. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, what have you found the, the list to be hinged upon? I mean, have you moved towards the classic Brunello Barolo axis or have you found that other areas are becoming more appealing to you? Or when you put together an Italian list today, uh, what are you thinking about? We're trying to find what's uh, what's hitting the marketplace and enchanting them in particular. So we started a Norello Mascalese page. Oh, okay. Like from Etna. Exactly. And there's, uh, of course, north of Edna as well. There's some great Norello there too in the Faro DOC. Sure. But uh, we found that uh, 
their aromatic range and their transparency to the vineyard is really exceptional and intrigues people who love Pinot Noir, Burgundy, and Barolo. So it could be a hook for people who are used to Burgundy who want exactly. to try something different from Italy. And uh, it's so many new ones in the marketplace that the adventure continues to grow and interesting bottlings, you know, I don't know if you remember Simply Red, the band, but the one of the most important producers on Mount Etna is the lead singer from Simply Red. Yeah, what's that called again? It's the uh, Cantonori? Il Cantante. Il Cantante. That means the singer. That the same. That's one, that one's pretty expensive, though. Are, are there some that you really like that maybe someone could go out and buy after listening to the show? Oh, sure. The, uh, the Gracchi productions. Yeah. It's two different levels, and nine of them are, are expensive. But that, uh, that really shows what you're getting from Mount Etna. Cool climate Sicilian wine. Lots of aromatics, crushed red flowers. You get the minerality as well. And then he makes it pretty accessible by definitely keeping some fruit intensity too. So you're not going to turn anybody off who's looking for more, a fruitier wine either. But it has the other elements too. That's a good place to start. And then Il Cantante is at the other end of the spectrum. Are you as drawn to some of the whites that are coming out of Sicily, or is that a different matter? No, there's a, we have a brand new wine called a Favigna, which is named for an island off the coast of Marsala. I didn't know that. It's brand new. I think I had to pre-order this wine after tasting it, and it's, it's just arrived. Maybe one of the best white wines I've had from Italy, but the soil on the island is a is a crust of limestone with fossils that they have well, to... Well, that's probably pretty ideal for white, huh? And well, yeah, they have to crush that rock grind it with the soil beneath in order to plant a vine. But you get mineral range, uh, great perfume from the Malvasia as well. Hmm. I'll have to check it out. When are you going to have it on the list? Uh, it's listed already. Okay. But uh, we're hoping to get more because we are flying through the two cases we committed to. Sounds good. Uh, so do you find that that kind of more Mediterranean access as opposed to the, the northern Italian thing is is more complementary to the kind of Mediterranean flavors uh, that you see on the plate, or what? We, what we makes try to sense? span all the regions. Uh -huh. the, a little bit of each. Each season will focus on a different region. So right now we're we're playing around with black truffles in Umbria in particular. Oh, okay, that makes sense because they they like Norcia truffles. You know, they grow exactly. black truffles in, in Umbria and white truffles. <laughs> the season has ended. The hunger for truffles continues, so... It seems like in New York, man, people always want truffles. It's true, and black truffles are pretty reasonable. Yeah, not bad. Like, even I can, you know, manage to... Whereas white's kind of out of my range now, unless it's <laughs> like too. a big special thing, you know what I mean? Exactly. Or someone who, who's really trying to share the truffles, which uh, Lincoln really does. You know, the, the white truffle prices are not stratospheric. Oh, is there. that true? We're trying to make sure that everyone gets a chance Give to Give people a break them. a little bit? Because you can smell them throughout the room. It's a... Uh, it's definitely a domino effect. Like when someone's having truffles, other people get truffles. That's right. If you watch the truffles walk by and get shaved at the table side in one part of the room and then another part, you know, the atmosphere is this truffle scent that uh, just transforms the room. But we're seeing with the black truffles now, the earthier style. So we're focused on some Umbrian wine. It's kind of fun to actually find some great Orvieto out there. Uh, do you find that ages at all or uh, do you go more towards the fresher styles or maybe both? I haven't had an old Orvieto in some time. It's been a while. I have to go back to brown wine days, I think. <laughs> but, you know, Orvieto has that, is that a dichotomy of oceans of it are made and consumed by the tourist energy in Rome and, and the town of Orvieto itself. So having someone commit to making high quality is a tougher challenge because they could sell an ocean and, uh, and sell out every year if they wanted to. And uh, what are some of the other trends in Italy that you're like, hey, that's cool? Uh, maybe the, in Tuscany, watching the pendulum swing back from Super Tuscans towards the more pure element, like Chianti producers really focusing in on making great Chianti. Like return to Sangiovese and other indigenous grape varieties, that kind of thing. Yeah, returning to high quality Chianti as a, as a label reference you can rely upon. Uh, what's it like trying to sell a Chianti these days? Are, are people kind of poo-pooing it? Or are people into it? Or what's the reaction when you say like, hey, how about a Chianti Classico? Well, it's a, it can be a tough thing to lead with and sound like you're a clever sommelier if you're, if you're backing into Chianti. But the conversation usually begins with, uh, with people who are looking for pure wines in general, some purity of fruit, some purity of, uh, of terroir. And that's where you can end up on that page as part of a conversation where you touch on a few different sections. And because the producers are 
taking advantage of those steep hillsides, the interesting soil types that they have, and the, and the old regional towns. That's really making a difference. We're going to do a dinner. We're hoping to bring in one of the great butchers from a town in Chianti as well. Oh, is that the one from that book, Heat? That's is that right. that guy Dario? Yeah, one of the characters. We're hoping to maybe swing through from the city and do a dinner. Penzano. That exactly. sounds awesome. Oh, it's a, trying to feature on Penzano producers in general. Oh, okay, because that's a, that'd be a really interesting theme. Although I think he doesn't get along with one of the most famous ones. Like they're huge enemies. That's a that's a a, a very Italian thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To discover the family feuds. <laughs> right, right. And which ones to avoid. Um, so can you invite me to that, by the way? I'm not like, I'll pay and stuff, but can you tell me when it's happening? Because yeah, I'd actually course. like to be there. <clears throat> uh, I'll cut that out. I'll cut out the part about me paying, but I mean, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, 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 I'm totally kidding. So uh, what's it like working with Chef Benno? I mean, he's a real famous guy. He worked at Per Se as Chef de Cuisine for a number of years, and not, he opened up Lincoln, and that was kind of his uh, move into Italian flavors, as you spoke about on the wine side. What's it like on the food side? What's he like to work with? Oh, he's a, he's also a character with a lot with a great sense of humor and uh, and vast knowledge and dedication to to quality every day uh, the uh, the intensity of pushing quality envelopes is uh, is something that's it's kind of fun to be around it makes it easier for me to communicate the same thing to the staff when the kitchen is singing that tune as well when you feel like you're really dialing in on your regions and your and the quality of the wine list gets better and better all the time you want to make sure that that resonates with the staff with a kitchen preaching the same thing it certainly makes a difference so he's getting into regionality, talking regionality to the staff, and then you are with the wine list too. So it's all of a whole. That's true. And and, uh, I'm sorry. Well, Chef Benno came from uh, came from Per Se with uh, Apollo Novello as well, and who's from Piedmont. And he was the maitre d', and he's like the GM at Lincoln, right? That's true. Yeah. So good Italian background. He keeps us focused on uh, on the Italian labels and uh, the Italian flair to the restaurant too. Do you guys kind of talk about the wine list sometimes? We do. What, what's his take? I mean, from kind of an older generation. Oh, it, well, he's actually my age, but it, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so a super older gen. No, I'm sorry. Exactly. No, uh, we creak with antiquity when we talk about the wine list, but it's fun to hear about what he sold in Italy and uh, sold raft loads of this particular wine that we're just now discovering in the United States. So it's kind of fun to hear the perspective. He's worked in London and uh, and in. Michelin star restaurants in Italy as well before coming to the United States. So it's a, definitely a dynamic perspective. And six years at Per Se didn't hurt either. And the Patina Group, which is uh, the, the the consortium that runs Lincoln, uh, is often associated with sort of concert venues. Or you know, they had a, a restaurant in in Disneyland. They had a concert at uh, concert hall in L.A. They had uh, a restaurant. Um, what kind of expertise do they bring about that? Because I don't know anything about that. Like if I were to say like, hey, what's it like to run a, a restaurant in a place where people have to make curtain time or people are going to something before they come to dinner? I mean, what what, what, why, what do I need to know? Well, they run the gamut. They're, the original concept for Lincoln Restaurant Day was to be the bookend to Patina in L.A. So Patina in LA is the, one of the longtime four-star restaurants there. So they have a high-end experience with that restaurant. They really wanted something on the East Coast to go beyond their, their concert venues and their catering aspect. And they do a great job at Rockefeller Center supporting the kind of tourist crowd. So their talent for tourism and innovative hospitality resonates for 50 years or so. But uh, they have a high-end restaurant and they wanted to do the other side. They changed the concept when they met Jonathan Benno and Paolo Novello, who were looking to do an Italian style. So that changed their idea about exactly what would go into the building. Because Joaquim Spiechel was a little bit more French-focused? I'm not true. sure. A little more, well, definitely techniques and, uh, and cuisine flair resonates uh, French more so. But uh, So they changed their concept to fit the chef and Chef Benno's concept for a restaurant. And... They've been really cooperative as well. What have you picked up from them? I mean, you know, what has made it easier for you to work based on what you heard from them? Well, they're uh, innovative hospitality throughout the years. What can we do new and different to, to make hospitality more accessible, work with more humility, yet more enthusiasm at the same time? That's, uh, I think, their history leaves you in awe of uh, you know, their 
the CEO, Nick Valenti, has a long history of creating innovations in the, in the business. And you want to be a part of that too. You want to find new ways to make wine more accessible, to make Italian food items more well-known, and to make the farm-to-table experience part of that as well. So what's next for you? What are your goals at Lincoln in the coming years? Well, we're working with uh, with opening several other restaurants in the Patina Group. and You are. Where we are. And we're watching to make sure that they have a kind of a vibe to them on the beverage side too. So This is in Lincoln Center or in other areas? In other areas of the city. You mm-hmm. know, Stella 34 will open in Macy's. Macy's is having its biggest facelift in, uh, in, I think, since it opened. So it's going to be a new dazzling flagship That's store. That's cool. And it's kind of fun to- Are watch. you helping out with that? I'm giving some advice to the team there, many of which come from Lincoln. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's a way to grow the, the personnel, right? That's Because right. people are looking for new opportunities. Maybe they want to become a manager or a captain and they can take well, on an opening. One of the great rewarding things is mentoring people in the business too. Have you found that to be uh, something that's really kept you going? Like you've looked around and been like, yeah, that, that guy's really successful now. And you know, we, I, I was there kind of early and I feel good about that. That's right. Yeah. And it starts with David Gordon. He's a great teacher, uh, someone with a, that kind of sense of humor that can introduce you into the, into, into the business, meeting winemakers, and then passing that on to other people makes a big difference. Well, I think we came full circle. Aaron Brown Rock, thank you very much for being here today. My pleasure. You can go see him at Lincoln Restaurant, and you can listen to him and learn something as often as you'd like. Thank you, sir. Cheers. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.